I've just been so thankful for every, uh, everything that uh, we've learned together as a church regarding what it means to be truly a triumphant church. And as Paul is here talking with the Thessalonians, we see that, that he just has this great fervent desire to pray for them and to support them and to encourage them. And really, as he receives the report back from Timothy, he just is, is just so relieved and encouraged. And he just shares in, in 1 Thessalonians 3 uh, how that God is just doing tremendous work in and through them in, in his life as a result of their testimony. And last week we began to look at uh, this, uh, this, this prayer that he prayed in verses 11 through 13. And we saw in the first uh, verse 11 that really uh, if we're going to have a life that's guided by grace, we must be willing to follow the Lord's leading. And, and so we learned that we must really... Uh, just go to God in prayer, uh, pray for one another, and, and just really developing that prayer life is an absolute essential if we're going to follow God's leading. And we see that even in verse 11, as it says, Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. We see that even in this verse, especially in the original languages, we see that it really points to the, to the deity of our Savior. Not, the, not just the Father, but both the Father and the Son are God together. And we're thankful for that. And later, 1 John, he teaches us that it's not the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that are uh, one, and they are all three God together. And so, you know, we're grateful for these great truths that we were able to learn last week. And as we see that, as we progress through this, we see that God really has a desire for us to follow uh, His leadership uh, in every aspect. And we dealt with, how do we know when God is leading? You know, there's the inward uh, circumstances that often uh, lead us. There's the outward indicators, and then there's also an upward indicator. And we looked at all of that together last week. But as we look here in verse number 12, we see that Paul is beginning to really, to just to, to, uh, just to share with them the, the, the next aspect of this prayer. And so if you will, let's look together at 1 Thessalonians 3, and we're going to read verses 11 through 13 together. It says, Now God Himself and our Father... And our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, He may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this great prayer that Paul prayed for this church. A church that was obviously a brand new church just, a, just uh, in its fledgling years. And we see, Lord, that through all of this and through, uh, Lord, your provision, that, God, you reminded them of your great love. Lord, how that you could be faithful in the hardest of times. And so, Father, I pray that as a, as a church we would learn from this, these lessons and, Lord, we would know what it's like to be a triumphant church. And I, I believe, Lord, that uh, as you develop and grow us personally and as a church collectively, that, God, we will see you do great and mighty things which we can't even imagine. We praise you, Father, and thank you for Christ. In his name, amen. As we look here in verse number 12, there, we see that God not only wants us to follow His uh, example, but we also want, uh, if we're going to have a life developed by grace, we must form a godly love. You know, and that's, I believe that's essential for us as we consider this because Paul really, he waited uh, for an opportunity to return to see the Thessalonians, but that opportunity didn't happen right away. 
It was a year after he had uh, helped the church to be birthed out of uh, the city of Thessalonica. And he just had a, a great fervency and a great burden for this church and all that was going on, that this church would grow and this church would be established. And so we see, we see here in verse 12, he says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward, men, uh, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. And so in verse number 12, we see that God really desires for us to abound in this kind of love. Uh, and and this, this word for love here is agape. And many of us have been in church. We've heard the word agape love. And, and if you've not, if this is kind of new for you, let me just remind you that agape love is a, is a love that uh, doesn't matter what happens or what people do, you still choose to love. You still choose to love them. Agape love must abound uh, toward all believers, even toward all men. That was the kind of a, uh, abounding love that they had experienced from him. J. Vernon McGee said this, This is not an affection, that would be phileo, but an active seeking of the welfare of another. Christ gave a great example of this love in action as he dealt with the story of the Good Samaritan. And you remember in that parable as Christ dealt with this story that, uh, you know, we see the, the priest and we saw the Jew. And then finally the, the Good Samaritan that came by and saw the needs of his neighbor. And, and I believe that that is a great picture that we can, we can love even the unlovely, even those that might spit upon us, even those that might curse us. And he said, we can love those. And, and so he calls us and he says, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. You know, there's one thing that you can't have too much of. You can have too much money, right? You can have so much money that it becomes a, a, a thorn in the flesh. A, a lady named Barbara Hutton had too much money. She was the granddaughter of F.W. Woolworth. At the age of 12, she inherited $25 million. Now, I know we may say, well, people today are billionaires. That's great, but $25 million at 12 years old, what would you do with that? Probably for me, when I was 12 years old, I'd have blown it in a week. But, you know, that's another story. But, you know, the, the legacy of her life teaches us that her money didn't make her happy. Her seven husbands didn't make her happy. She was plagued with sickness. She died of a heart attack and her last years of her life, she, was, she spent as a recluse. Many times she was bedridden. This is what the newspaper said. She was the poor little rich girl. What a terrible epitaph. Boy, what a terrible thing. She had too much money. I think as a young girl, she had too much money, became her love. And remember what Peter said. He says the, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so we see here that that just became obsession. Nothing else mattered. But you know, we're going to have too much power. Think about some of these men with us. Alexander the Great had too much power. In the end, he wanted to be worshipped as a god. Or how about Nero, Napoleon, Hitler, even Stalin had too much power. Lord Acton said this, Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, power is pretty heady stuff, isn't it? It's more intoxicating often for people than wine. People with power can think that they can do and be anything that they want and whatever they want. Few things are more self-corrupting, more ego-inflating, more soul-destroying than power. Listen, I think God wants us to ask that we, uh, that, that we be led of Him in our life. Some Christians are asking God for more power, but God really wants us to be empowered by His Spirit. 
You see, it's the Spirit that has power in 2 Timothy 1.7. It's only the Spirit that can be trusted with such power, not me and you. We're going to have too much education. All of the education in the world does not necessarily make a person wise, right? I've known some, really, some people who were incredibly wise and never went past the third or fourth grade. I've known some people that were incredibly unwise who graduated with multiple degrees. Never in history have we had more men and, and more, uh, more knowledge tossed around than we do today. If you have a smartphone in your pocket, you know that you can access the knowledge of countless millions of people. I'm not going to comment on whether they're good or bad. But there are millions of clever people in the world, and most of them, unfortunately, are too clever to come to Christ. We can have too much education. Many young people go off to college, and they sit at the feet of a, a really a very incredibly intelligent people, but they're humanistic professors who systematically strip them of their faith and throw them back into the world as an educated moron. And essentially, hopelessly adrift. They're without a spiritual anchor, without a compass or even a rudder, and they're, like, uh, they're driven before the, the winds of the godless age that we stand before today. You see, we can have too much education, but we can never have too much agape love. Think about that with me. That This is the highest kind of love in the universe, the love that, that beats the, in the very heart of God. And the, the same word is used in John 3.16, For God so agape loved the world. Can you imagine that? Even when we were undeserving, even when we spit upon Him, even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the kind of love. He says it, it has no explanation outside of God Himself. How in the world can we love as, as Paul is praying that they would learn to, learn to love? How could we care for others as God commands us to here? God loves us in all of our wretchedness, in our lostness, and with a love that passes really all understanding. Imagine that God loves us. And not just those in this room, because, listen, Christ didn't just die for us here. He died for the whole world. And so in trying to explain, really, God's love, I think Moses kind of deals with this well. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. Because Israel was another recipient of the love of God when they didn't deserve it. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, Moses begins to kind of explain and, and try to say, let, let me show you why God loves you. And so the answer almost is going to seem circular in reasoning. It says, The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of, the, uh, of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Did you catch what he said in that second in verse 8? But because the Lord loved you, he just essentially chose to love you. It wasn't because of anything good that you have done. As Romans teaches us, there's nothing good that I have done. There's nothing good in me. And just like the Israelites, there's nothing good in them. But God looked at them and says, I choose to love you. What a powerful, powerful thought the world needs to hear today. That God chooses to love them. Not because we're good or not because we earned it, not because of any great thing that I've done. And I can look at myself and say, look at, look at the great things that John has done. But instead, because Isaiah teaches us, all of our righteousness, all of the good things that we think are so great are as filthy rags. And this is what God says. But because 
I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. And doesn't that seem circular in reasoning, but, but that's God's reason. God loves us because He chose to love us. It's in God's nature to love us. The love was incarnate in Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 4. Because in Ephesians 2, we see this love poured out so richly. And when God wrote and He said, But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us. A poet named Thomas Kelly was, uh, wrote this little verse. He was, lived from 18, or 1769 to 1854. He said this, Love that no tongue can teach, love that no thoughts can reach, no love like His. God is its blessed source. Death, can ne'er st- uh, death ne'er can stop its course. Nothing can stay its force. Matchless it is. How truly beautiful the love of God. I want, to, I want you to point to this agape love and, and show you that it is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Notice, notice that this is the kind of love in every Christian. This is the direct fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, you might be able to quote it as we see it on the screen, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, temperance, meekness, against such there is no law. And we see in Galatians 5.22, he sees the very first one, the very first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that we see is that of love. Listen, this is not the same as the gifts of the Spirit. Because the gifts of the Spirit are distinct within the body of Christ, and they differ. You know, they can differ greatly. Uh, Sister Diana Blankenship plays beautifully on the piano. Get me over there, and I'm, I'm a one-shot one wonder. And, you know, anybody can play the piano, but not everybody can make it sound good. Can I get an amen to that? You know, some, some of them may come up, and they may sing beautifully. Karen Mullen, great job on this song tonight. Beautiful song. I never get tired of being reminded of that truth in that song. And she got up here and she sang beautifully, but some of you would say, that's not my gift, preacher. I'm going to tell you right now, you want me to stay in the pew and not on the platform. But you know, gifts vary, but well, this is what I noticed, that about the fruit of the Spirit, they don't vary. These are stagnant between every believer because it is the product of the Holy Spirit's work in our life is that we learn to love one another, that we have joy, that we have peace and long-suffering and goodness and gentleness and faith and temperance and meekness. This is the product of the, of the uh, work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Paul loved lost people. He loved saved people. And love seeks the well-being of all people. It is no respecter of persons. It keeps no running account of injuries. And it is marvelously kind. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit. This is God. what God's dealing with us here. And He says, this is what love is. This is only what the Spirit can produce. You see, because the Holy Spirit, in my own flesh, I can't love someone who's just spit upon me. In my own spirit, I can't love someone who I feel has done me wrong. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can do things. I can do all things. Christian love is far more than just affection. That would be phileo. Love may and often does involve emotions, but agape love is commanded and therefore is as much an action of the will as it is of the emotions and the intellect. Think about that for a second. Agape love is not as much tied to the emotions as it is to the action. God obviously has been hurt by each of us. 
Isaiah 53 describes that beautifully for us. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was stricken. He was smitten of God and afflicted. And, and we just see that the outpouring of our hate toward our Savior. And yet we see that, that God still chose to love us. And this is what God is saying. That is the aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We can choose to love like that. So we see that love, uh, as, as, uh, as the Apostle Paul is writing, he says, The Lord make you to increase and abound in this agape love, one toward another. And that's within the church body. And then he goes on and says, toward all men. Now I want you to kind of r- remind just yourselves and myself a little bit of this time frame in which they lived. We, we enjoy such great freedoms today. You know, and, and though we see some of those freedoms uh, begin to erode in our country, the, the basic principle is still there. And we still enjoy a lot of freedom as Christians and as believers today. And I think we should continue to rejoice in that and express those free, freedoms and continue to exercise those freedoms. But this is not the, the way that it was during when Paul wrote this to the church in Thessalonica. If you remember, a year prior to that, he was basically... He left under pressure from Thessalonica so that Jason and all those in the church who had to live in, in Thessalonica wouldn't be arrested. You see, this was not an easy time for the brethren. And this is what he says. He says, The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even, the, uh, even loving, being loving to the undeserving. Hmm. The Thessalonians, they endured much. Fierce persecution at their hands of their enemies. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14 to the previous chapter, he says this, For ye brethren became followers of the churches of God which, are, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. He says, listen, just like they have suffered in in Judea, so you have suffered at the hands of your countrymen. The natural human tendency is to retaliate, isn't it? The natural human tendency is to to fight back. Man, if you push me, I'm going to push you back. I remember as a kid on the playground that somebody would push you, you push them back. I pushed you, or you know, you throw your mama jokes around and all kinds of stuff back then. But let me just remind you that, that, that God's call for us is to abound in love. Love even the undeserving. Paul's advice was this, win them by love. Though lost in this world, they need to see the love of Christ coming out of us. To respond bitterly in persecution is self-defeating and it's destructive of character. God reserves all vengeance to Himself. Listen to Romans chapter number 12 and verse number 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith who? The Lord. Sometimes we, we want to change that verse and say, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the John. And I want to take it into my own hands. And I want to retaliate. And I want to, I want to give him what he deserves. But Christ is our supreme example. But we see even in a life of one of the early deacons in the church. I'm grateful for good deacons. I'm grateful for men who will stand and they will, they will be the ministry arms that God has called them to be. Stephen was such a man. A man full of the Holy Ghost and we see him just being used greatly of God. I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter number 6 
Because Stephen was a man who preached unashamedly. A man who was willing to say, listen, I'm going to share the word of God. And the Apostle Paul, as he was, was there, listen, before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul to the, to the Greeks, he was first a Jew. He was first an antagonist of the, the church. And that's where we see in Acts chapter number 6 and Acts chapter number 7, where he was here at this moment, hearing the, the testimony, hearing the, the sermon of Stephen, and this is what we, we read, Acts chapter number 6, verses 13 through 15. We see that Stephen was really just, I mean, he was preaching a hot summer sermon that day. And this is what he said, And set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him that day, that, uh, that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the, uh, the council looked steadfastly on him and saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. As he had finished that sermon, we see that they brought him in and they began to interrogate him. And they saw, even in this moment, that, that Stephen's face had turned into the face of an angel. And I believe that the, uh, Saul was there that day. And as he saw uh, Stephen's countenance changed, and he saw really the love of the Lord coming out of this guy who stood condemned to die, we see that, that, that Paul was affected by that. Paul, Saul, I'm going to use it interchangeably at this point, so forgive me for that. But doubtless he heard Stephen announced to the maddening assembly that the heavens were open and the Son of Man was standing at the right hand of God. He was certainly present when Stephen was stoned. We heard him cry with a loud voice as the stones were beating him down. And this is what Saul would have heard. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Perhaps the face of Stephen haunted him even to that day. Seeing a man who had just been beaten with stones crying out, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. That's the kind of agape love that Paul writes about here. That's the kind of love that he says, this is the kind of love that God calls for us to extend one toward another, even toward the lost world, is even when you are beaten, even when you are mocked and spit upon, he says, listen, love. In the book, The Grace of Giving, Stephen Olford tells of a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution. His name was Peter Miller who lived in uh, Ephrata, Pennsylvania, and he enjoyed the friendship of George Washington. In Ephrata also lived Michael Whitman. He was an evil-minded sort of man who did all he could to oppose and humiliate the pastor. One day, Michael Whitman was arrested for treason and sentenced to die. Peter Miller, who was his aunt, uh, who was, they were on opposite sides, traveled 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of this traitor. No, Peter, General Washington said, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. My friend, exclaimed the old pastor, he's the bitterest enemy I have. What? cried Washington. You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a whole nother course. I'll pardon him today. Imagine that. That day, a man who was an enemy became a friend. Because there was grace, there was love extended. A time when someone should have been, uh, been bitter and angry and said he got what he deserved. He went and said, listen, let me show you the love of Christ. Love can be known only from the act actions it prompts. Did you catch that? You see, even God displayed his love in the gift of his son. 1 John 4 
9 through 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent not His only begotten Son into the world that we might, that we might live through Him here in His love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is not the love of complacency. Listen, this was the love of the Father. Christian love has God for its primary object and it expresses itself in obedience to His commandments. Look at 1 John with me, chapter 2 and verse number 11. It won't be on the screen, but I just want to share this. this well, it may be on the screen, I'm sorry. 1 John 2, 11. I want to share with you a couple of things out of 1 John. If you want to know how to love as God loves, read 1 John. It's an incredible journey of what God has for us. 1 John 2, 11 says, But he that hateth his brother is in, what is that word? Darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. And First John 4, in verse number 11, he says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then verse 20 of the same chapter, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? You see... As we think about love, love seeks the welfare of all and seeks opportunity to do good to all men, especially them that are of the household of faith. Love is not an end of itself, but it's a means to an end. And this is what he gets onto in verse number 13. That end is holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 1. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Now as touching the things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge, and knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. It buildeth up charity, this kind of love that he's talking about here, especially agape love when it's extended. It will build the church. It will build the lives. It will build those around us. And so let us be, be good unto all men, especially them that are of the household of faith. You see, because loving in good times is easy, isn't it? Loving when, when things are good and people are smiling and they're hugging you on your back. Man, it's an easy to love people at that time. But when, when the relationship has been strained and when there's a, a schism in the body and when there are times where it seems like uh, it is difficult to love, that's when God says that's when it's time to pour out agape love toward one another. The, Lord, the world knows that it can love in the good times. It's when we have been hurt that it makes it different. 1 Peter 2.23 says, uh, talks about Christ. It says, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Dave Simmons wrote in uh, the book, Dad, the Family Coach, this illustration I'd like to share with you. Two weeks after the stolen steak deal, I took Helen, eight years old, and Brandon, five years old, to the Cloverleaf Mall in Hattiesburg to do a little shopping. As we drove up, we spotted a Peterbilt 18-wheeler parked with a big sign on the side that said, Petting Zoo. The kids jumped up in a rush and asked, Daddy, Daddy, can we go? Please, please, can we go? Sure, I said, flipping them both a quarter before walking into Sears. Obviously, this was a few years ago. They bolted away, and I felt free to take my time looking for a scroll saw. Hey, man, that's good right there. A petting zoo consists of a portable fence erected in the mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals of all kinds. Kids pay their money and stay in the enclosure entrapment with the squirmy little creatures while their moms and dads shop. A few minutes later, I turned around and saw Helen walking right behind me. 
I was shocked to see her. She because uh, I was shocked to she she preferred the hardware department to the petting zoo. Recognized my error, I bent down and asked her what was wrong. She looked at me with those big giant brown eyes and said sadly, "Well, Daddy, it cost fifty cents." So I gave Brandon my quarter. Then she said the most beautiful thing I ever heard. She repeated the family motto. The family motto is, love is action. She had given Brandon her quarter. No one loves furry, cuddly creatures more than Helen. She had watched Sandy uh, take uh, my stake and say, love is action. She had watched both of uh, us do and say, love is action for years around the house and, and, and the King's Arrow Ranch. She had heard and seen love is in action, and now she had incorporated it into her little lifestyle. It had become part of her. What do you think I did? Well, not what you might think. As soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo. We stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched, watched Brandon. I had 50 cents just burning a hole in my pocket, but I never offered it to Helen, and she never asked for it. Because she knew the whole family motto. It's not love is action. It's love is sacrificial action. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefits accrue to another's account. Love, uh, love is for you, not for me. Love gives, it doesn't grab. Helen gave her quarter to Brandon and wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. She wanted to experience that total family motto. Love is sacrificial action. You know, as we consider what Paul wrote here today, and we consider the, the prayer he had for this church, and as he prayed in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, and he said, he said, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. I believe that God is calling us as well, that same prayer. Would you let love abound more and more in your heart? You know, as a church, we're going to go through times where we get flustered with one another, won't we? This is what I learned. Our church is kind of like a family. There's going to be times where, where maybe we get disgruntled with someone. And let me just urge you, let me just implore you, let me beg you, as Paul wrote here, let the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. And not only toward one another, but toward all men, so that all can see Christ in and through us.